Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. I still have a cold, so apologies for my nasally voice, but the news does not stop for colds, and neither do we. So we're here today to talk about the recent announcement of the lineup for the end of year music program Kohaku Utagasen. For the first time in decades, there are no Johnny and Associates linked acts taking part in the show, which is a program those acts used to dominate. We'll catch you up on the latest on the Johnnies and the Takurazuka scandals with music writer Patrick St. Michel. But first, staff writer Gabriel Dominguez joins us to discuss Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit to the APEC Forum in San Francisco last week, which included a meeting with our own Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. Big news in geopolitics circles last week was a long-awaited meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping, a meeting that was said to be a year in the making. Um, it happened on the side of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum that took place in San Francisco between November 11th and 17th. Also meeting Xi on the sidelines of the forum, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. With me to talk more about that relationship is staff writer Gabriel Dominguez. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, Sean. So Kishida and Xi met in person and spoke to each other for about an hour. Why was this noteworthy? Well, while it might not sound like much, let's remember that this has been quite a rocky year for Sino-Japanese ties. There have been a number of issues. For starters, China banned all Japanese seafood imports in August after Tokyo began releasing treated wastewater from the crippled uh, Fukushima nuclear plant. Mm -hmm. This is important because China is the main export market for Japanese seafood, so this has dealt a blow to Japan's marine sector. Tokyo has even threatened to bring the case to the World Trade Organization. Right. So Japan insists that the water discharge is scientifically safe, this is a view that is also backed by the UN Atomic uh, Watchdog, the IAEA. But China has referred to the water as nuclear-contaminated water repeatedly. Mm. And tensions have also continued over territorial disputes, for instance, in the East and South China Seas. And there was also Tokyo's decision during the summer to join Washington in imposing export restrictions on chip-making tools the idea is that Washington wants to curb China's ability to produce advanced semiconductors and uh, basically join those efforts. So it hasn't been the best of times for the two countries this year. Right. So a dispute over fish, territorial issues, and restricting China's ability to produce advanced semiconductors. In the one hour that she and Kishida met, did they resolve all these problems? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, despite their ongoing differences, though, the two decided that they want to move the relationship forward, or as they put it, commit to a mutually beneficial relationship. There wasn't much agreement made on strategic issues, such as a territorial spat over the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, but some progress was made on the seafood ban. I guess that's good news. Yeah, after the meeting, Kishida said he and she had agreed to try and find a solution through quote-unquote science-based consultation and dialogue at an expert's level. It's unclear, though, when these consultations will start, but possibly before the end of the year? Okay. I guess agreeing to try to resolve the issue is a somewhat positive step. In your piece, though, you mentioned that China and Hong Kong represented the two largest markets for Japanese seafood in 2022, uh, with exports amounting to 42% of total sales overseas. That's a considerable amount. Is there any reason to hope that she could resolve this sooner rather than later? I think that's difficult to say. 
So the way I see it is that the main reason for this is that this is mainly a political issue for China. Mm. And Beijing doesn't tend to reverse trade decisions quite so quickly. Okay. You see... Japanese marine products make up a surprisingly small portion of China's total seafood imports. So while this is important for the Japanese fishing industry, it's less important for Beijing as a whole. Uh. So Beijing can theoretically decide to buy seafood from somewhere else, imported, say, from Russia or from Norway, until it feels that it has some sort of concession from Japan in return. Mm. At the heart of the matter, I think are the unresolved strategic issues affecting the relationship, especially those that irk China very much. We're talking about Japan's efforts to boost military partnerships to deter China, but also about statements made by Tokyo uh, that the security of Taiwan is critical to the security of the wider region and the world. Obviously, Beijing disagrees with this because Beijing sees Taiwan as part of China, so this is an internal issue. A lot was made of Xi's meeting with Biden. Do we have reason to believe that the one-hour discussion with Kishida offered much to Japan? I think it's important to mention that the two countries have shown that they're willing to put aside some of their disagreements, at least temporarily. They want to focus on getting their economic and trade relations back on track. Mm. So I think that's very important. Uh, we saw this already before the summit when the two countries' uh, economy ministers agreed to set up a framework to discuss export controls. Uh -huh. They also agreed to set up a working group to improve what they call the business environment. Among other things, this involves efforts to ensure the safety of Japanese business people in China. This is an important issue for Tokyo, particularly after a Japanese executive was sentenced to 12 years in a Chinese prison on espionage charges. Actually, this sounds somewhat similar to the approach um, China's taking with the United States, just on a smaller scale. So we've been hearing a lot about the increasingly assertive China over the past few years. Why is Beijing softening its stance now? I think the main factor has been China's economic slowdown. Okay. You know, let's keep in mind that the country has recently been facing economic difficulties, a situation that is definitely not good for the Communist Party. A slowing economy uh, not only affects social stability in China, but also the Communist Party's legitimacy as the country's ruler. Mm. Um, Chinese leaders understand this, so they seem more eager than before to improve relations with countries that are important to its economy, for instance, Japan, Australia, and others. Mm. Uh, but this also makes sense from Tokyo's perspective. Let's not forget that Japanese policymakers cannot really afford to be complacent uh, Japanese GDP contracted at an annualized 2.1% over the summer. So looking at it from this perspective, this could be a win-win approach if both sides manage to find common ground. And Kishida needs a win. Our colleague Gabriele Ninavaji was on the podcast two weeks ago talking about Kishida's tanking popularity, uh, which has a lot to do with the state of the economy. And this week, polls in three major Japanese newspapers put his support at new lows, only 21% in the Mainichi. So what's next? Where do we go from here? It's difficult to say, um, as any major geopolitical incident might derail the momentum that has been going on between the two sides in recent weeks. Okay, so let's hope there are no spy balloons. Uh, right, right. However, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the important thing is that China continues to engage other countries in the region. In fact, efforts are currently underway to resume regular high-level talks. Um, we are looking at um, 
the potential first meeting between Chinese, Japanese, and South Korean foreign ministers uh, later this month to try and find a more common ground and hopefully to get relations back on track. Okay, look into your crystal ball. Is 2024 going to be a year of continued regional tension, barring any surprises? Well, that's another one tough to predict. (laughs) My gut feeling tells me no. In fact, there are many indications that 2024 is likely to be a bumpy geopolitical year for the Asia-Pacific as a whole. Um, There are several events in the coming year that could set back the progress made both in this meeting and in the one that took place uh, between uh, Xi and President Joe Biden. Okay, for example... Um, Well, these include escalating territorial disputes in the South China Sea, for instance, between Beijing and the Philippines. Uh, We also have more economic de-risking measures by Washington and its allies. We're talking here about export controls, fewer investments in China, Mm. investment elsewhere. Um, There's also going to be increased competition over so-called global South countries. Uh, Right now, for instance, the U.S. and China are vying for influence in Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, and South America. And I heard there's going to be an election in the States. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and one in Taiwan, too. Right, uh, okay. th- The result of which could have uh, big implications for Sino-U.S. ties, actually. Mm. But, I mean, the same could apply also for the upcoming U.S. election. Um, you see, with both Republicans and Democrats agreeing to get tougher on China, I expect their electoral campaigns to be filled with anti-China rhetoric, and this could damage ties. Mm. For instance... Just talk of increasingly arming Taiwan or, say, ignoring the one-China policy or of elevating Taiwan to the to the status of a U.S. military ally would certainly upset Beijing. Right. So I guess while Biden and Xi kind of agreed to resume high-level communications at their latest meeting— um, Well, they didn't really tackle any of the major issues between uh, the two countries. Mm. Um, So this means that the era of deep Sino-U.S. engagement, as we've seen it in past decades, is unlikely to return anytime soon. Uh, This will also affect Japan and, and other U.S. allies and partners in the region. So if I actually look into my crystal ball... The security situation in the Asia-Pacific is likely to remain tense for the foreseeable future. All right. Thanks very much, Gabriel. You're welcome. Hey, Patrick. Welcome back to Deep Dive. First, I just want to get your thoughts on Beat Takeshi's press conference last week. Um, Takeshi Kitano, the 76-year-old comedian, actor, and award-winning film director, was at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan promoting his new film, Kubi. And he was asked a few questions about entertainment world-related scandals that have been unfolding recently. Looking at, of course, within the entertainment world, within the talents, working with Johnny's agency and so on, I have worked for many decades together with people who are part of this agency. And during this period, of course, we heard various rumors throughout the time, also various different people saying that, you know, these kind of things are things which were occurring very often. These were things that we did hear over the time as well. Uh, In a way, even at that time, with the way that the Japanese entertainment world, people could even assume or would perhaps expect that if you are going to enter that world, that is the situation, that is what is going to happen there. So that answer was in response to a question on the sexual abuse scandal at the Johnny and Associates talent agency this year. Right. So he came out of the gate really hot. You know, he introduced himself as a Johnny Kitano. Mm. 
probably because he knew that a question would probably be coming his way about Johnny Kitagawa, the disgraced founder of Johnny and Associates Talent Agency, and also because he was at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan, which kind of famously earlier this year hosted a very noteworthy press conference focused on Kitagawa. Right. I guess, like, before we get too deep into this, we should probably catch everyone up just in case. One of the biggest entertainment slash crime stories of the year in Japan has been the reckoning with the aforementioned Kitagawa, who founded Johnny and Associates, a very famous talent agency that over the last few decades has been home to J-pop superstars such as Smop, Arashi, so on and so forth. These omnipresent names in Japanese entertainment. Uh, There have always been rumors about him sexually assaulting young men in his company. But this year, following the release of a BBC documentary focused on this history, coupled with more former Johnny's performers coming forward with their stories, the scandal actually snowballed into a big discussion and resulted in the agency acknowledging that this happened for the first time and massive shifts, not just with this agency itself, but also Japanese entertainment at large. Yeah, I think it's arguably, well, I think it is the biggest entertainment world story. Yeah, of absolutely. The year in Japan, yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. So, Kitano, besides being Kitano himself and opening with, you know, a joke that I don't think anyone else could get away with. Right. Uh, but hey, when you can do it, go for it. You know, he was eventually asked questions about the Johnny's scandal. He's kind of an elder statesman of Japanese entertainment, this globally recognized superstar. So, of course, the biggest entertainment story, you're going to ask one of its biggest characters about it. Mm. And he talked a bit about, you know, his experience in the Japanese entertainment industry, talking about how it's not, you know, not that Japan is unique in this way, but, you know, the entertainment industry can be a pretty sleazy place and full of all kinds of bad stuff when you dig into it. I mean, we saw this come into the spotlight over the last few years in America with the Me Too movement. Mm. Uh, And now in 2023, with the entire Johnny's thing and a few other recent developments, we're kind of seeing a larger reckoning within Japanese entertainment as well. And him just acknowledging it, even if he's not, you know, shedding light on anything, to see one of the biggest names underline that point is still very important. I thought it was interesting how he actually spoke more about the dynamics that are particular to Japan. Mm -hmm. So he used the opportunity to kind of explain this kind of master... It's in Japan, it's like senpai, kohai, like senior, junior relationship that a lot of entertainers go into um, and how that was replaced at some point with these schools. So instead of doing this one-on-one, you would kind of have these like kind of maybe one on several like kind of subjects who were kind of learning the craft of whether it be rakugo or manzai or even uh, takorazuka, what they do. Yeah, you mentioned that. And he also spoke to a reporter's question on Takarazuka, uh, where one of its rising stars reportedly killed themselves. Right. Takarazuka is the all-female musical theater review in which the cast will perform stories adapted from film or manga. And it's notable for the fact that women play male roles, which has led them to sometimes being seen as sex symbols among their female fan base. Mm, yeah, yeah. And... It seems like recently Takarazuka is undergoing its 
own kind of investigation, which looks very similar to what we saw play out with Johnny and Associates, looking at allegations of power harassment on top of really grueling working conditions based on what's being reported. Right. Takarazuka set up a panel to investigate this young woman's death, but a report that was released last week drew criticism from her family, and so there will be a new panel set up before year-end that includes outside individuals. Are we seeing kind of a similar process to what Johnny's went through? Do we have like a template for handling this kind of like complaint now? I think we could be. I mean, with Johnny's earlier this year, once all of this kind of boiled over and they were forced to stare it down, they initially just did an in-company investigation, but owing to pressure from the media and other observers, they ultimately brought in a panel from outside the company to also investigate and share their findings. I'm speculating here, but if I were the victim's lawyers, I'd look at the success that the Johnny's victims have seen in recent months and try my best to replicate that. Mm. And that was also the catalyst for the company first acknowledging Kitagawa's crimes in the past. And then also, based on their recommendations, it led to them changing the corporate structure and a bit more symbolically, the name of the company. What's going on with the name of the company? Everyone wants to know. (laughs) So they had a press conference in September where they said they would change the name, but they also split the company into two companies. Okay. So they initially said that one company would be called Smile Up, but that's not the company that deals with the talent and entertainment. Right. I have the um, formerly Johnny's English Twitter account open. The current name is New Name Coming Soon at Temporary (laughs) Hello World. (laughs) It's like they're trying to be Muji out here with no branding, (laughs) but... Yeah, right now they don't have a name. Right. So when we talk, when we say Johnny's, we mean the agency formerly known as Johnny's that does not actually have a name. So yeah. like TBD. So yeah, that's where we're at with that. Question marks all around. Yeah. But in theory, they are changing it and we're just awaiting the moment they unveil it. But anyway, names aside, uh, Kitano was speaking to that and he acknowledged the dark side of Japan's entertainment world. Uh, Kitano, he's never held back when it comes to his opinions on the entertainment industry or anything, but it's still really important that someone of his stature continues to comment on it. You know, it keeps the issue in the headlines and it allows people to sort of not let the pressure off, you know? Right. So also keeping within this kind of like realm of news, we should mention that last week, a man who was allegedly sexually abused by Johnny Kitagawa was found dead of a possible suicide. Um, He was in his 40s and part of an association of Kitagawa's victims. And that association has reportedly been receiving a lot of harassment online. Yeah, Johnny's fans are... Very passionate. To put it uh, as, lightly. Let's <laughs> put it very lightly, as many, many pop fans are. And like with all pop fandoms, there's there's always going to be a minority of fans who sort of take things too far. And this is a great example of that. And we've seen it all year, honestly. There's a certain subsect of the Johnny's fandom that has just been very angry about any accusations and now admitted to claims aimed at the company and its talent. Right. So, you know, the death 
of this man who is a former member of Johnny's is obviously very upsetting. I would say, though, uh, not as dark as cyberbullying, but I've seen a lot of varying responses online to last week's Kohaku announcement, too. One of the results from the Johnny scandal is that the talent from the agency have been removed from various shows and as brand ambassadors. Um, The latest one aspect to this kind of collective punishment is that this past week, the lineup for national broadcaster NHK's Kohaku Utagasen program was announced and there were no Johnny's talents included on that roster. Mm -hmm. We'll get to the ramifications of that in a minute, but Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about Kohaku and its significance to the Japanese music and cultural landscape first? Kohaku is basically the biggest music show of the year in Japan. It began in 1951, originally as a radio program held by the national broadcaster NHK, and in 1953 shifted to TV. Um, And then in 1959, I think it moved to its permanent residence in NHK Hall in Shibuya. So uh, the name Kohaku, it means red and white in English with the full name Kohaku Utagasen. That can be translated as the red and white song contest. Okay. That's because, in theory, this is a singing competition between female performers represented in the red team and male performers in the white team. At the end of the program, they're supposed to like vote and see which team won. But this is maybe the least significant part of the show. <laughs> Nobody is really keeping track of this. Yeah, That's, I can't tell you who won last year. Yeah. Getting on Kohaku is a real big milestone for any performer. And part of that was because for decades, Kohaku was seen as one of the only things to do on New Year's Eve. Hmm. That's because, as you were very aware, Sean, New Year's Eve and New Year's in general in Japan is not traditionally a raucous holiday. Uh It's more about like staying home with family and maybe relaxing. And usually you just like watch TV or clean your house or it's kind of like resetting for the new year. Right, right. And Kohaku was just the biggest music show on New Year's Eve and still is. It's a great thing to have on in the background. Exactly. Yeah, it's not people aren't watching it necessarily to be like, oh, let me discover music. They're watching it because it's Kohaku and it's New Year's Eve. Mm. It's like watching peanuts on christmas you know right so the johnny's acts have been a major part of this oh yeah they have been a presence on kohaku for over four decades like consecutively but i actually want to go back to something you mentioned earlier sean okay you had said like in the fallout of all of this we've been you know there's been a pushback against johnny's entertainers yeah there was a lot of like tv shows saying we're gonna like rethink how we use them commercial campaigns ditching entertainers i would say in recent months though i have noticed that starting to soften again all right i've seen way more johnny's people on tv recently and even in a few commercials as well okay Also, it is important to stress that, like, even though all of this has been happening, Johnny's group's sales numbers are still, like, super high. Mm. But to me, that's what makes NHK's decision to shy away from them and to sort of, like, still shun them despite the fact, you know, 
they are some of the biggest artists of the year. I do think that's actually a stand that they're taking. Right, right. Um, and also one that could affect their ratings. So, yeah. Okay, so those bands are out. They're out. Who is on this year's lineup? There's way too many artists to list right now, but let's use this year's theme as a jumping off point. Uh, NHK has decided this year's Kohaku theme is borderless. Okay. Like all Kohaku themes, it's extremely vague what they mean. Um, But when we look at the actual lineup, you do pick up on the inclusion of more non-Japanese groups. So when we did a previous podcast about the Johnny scandal, I spoke to my hairdresser, who's a big Johnny's fan, and I asked him for his take on this year's Kohaku. Uh, like I knew you were coming on the show this week, so I scheduled a haircut and it's asked him. <laughs> very sweet of you to get a haircut. <laughs> I asked him who he was looking forward to seeing on this year's show. And the first act he mentioned was Stray Kids. Oh, really? Yeah. W- why was that? I, he really likes Stray Kids. Huh, okay. Yeah. So for those those unfamiliar with Stray Kids, they are a Korean group who have, in the past two years, gotten pretty big globally. They've had multiple albums top Billboard America's album ranking. Yeah. And like they've appeared on American TV. They appear on Japanese TV all the time. They're very popular in Japan as well. Like a lot of K-pop groups, they release lots of Japanese versions of their songs too. Mm. And they're not the only Korean group appearing on this year's Kohaku. There are, I want to say, in total, including Stray Kids, four K-pop acts that will be performing on New Year's Eve. And Kohaku's always actually made space for K-pop and Korean artists. Even if you go into the 90s, they would have, like, every once in a while, a Korean artist appear. Okay. But that was almost more like, a, let's check in on what's happening in Asia. Whereas now, this is a real musical force that is super popular in Japan. So, in the late 2010s, there was a very noticeable lack of K-pop. Uh-huh. But starting from last year, in 2022... NHK has started inviting more K-pop acts back. Okay. And that includes both Stray Kids and another male group called Seventeen, who are like just huge boy bands. They are quite similar in makeup to a Johnny's group in that there's like eight to nine guys. Who are the other K-pop groups? The other two K-pop groups that are appearing are female groups. Uh, One is La Seraphim who actually appeared last year as well. They are interesting because they're actually a mix of Korean performers and Japanese artists. Uh Most notably, one of their Japanese members is uh, Sakura Miyawaki, who used to be the most popular member of AKB48. Oh, right. Until she jumped over to K-pop. So yeah, they're big and kind of reflect the intermingling of Japanese and Korean talent to form this kind of new globally local, they call it, global K-pop. And then the other group actually takes it even further. It's a group called Misamo, okay, which is just the three Japanese members of the extremely popular girl group Twice. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, they basically have made a subunit. Its existence is to make even more money in the Japanese market. <laughs> so even though they're technically part of the K-pop industry, they are all Japanese. And for NHK, it's a chance to, one, potentially make up for the perceived drop in viewers that you're going to get with no Johnny's acts. 
But it's also a chance for NHK. NHK has been like always highlighting Korean culture. If you stay up late enough, you will start seeing all the NHK like language learning shows. Uh-huh. And their Korean one actually features most of these artists. Oh, okay. Like um, Seventeen actually used to be the hosts of it a few years ago. Right. Now it's more of like a rotating cast of groups. Every week, a different group will teach you how to order food at a restaurant in Korean. And I think La Seraphim, Stray Kids, Twice, all of these people have been on it. So like... There's a natural crossover with what NHK has been doing. Just as an aside, the hairdresser told me that he liked Case 143 by Stray Kids. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite Stray Kids song? Do I have a favorite Stray Kids song? I am going to indulge in recency bias okay. and say their latest single, which was released last week, called La 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 La. Uh-huh. I like it because it's them interpreting a style of Eastern European dance music called uh, drift funk, okay. P-H-O-N-K. Right. Uh, I won't bore you, dear listener, with a description of that other than to say it is very aggressive and it's very annoying, almost gabber in construction. Oh, wow. I love that they like took that and made a song out of it. That's great. Okay, so the hairdresser, uh, which everyone should have guessed by now is my like main go-to on uh, current J-pop Deep culture. Deep dive expanded universe. <laughs> um, anyway, he said that he was wondering how Strawberry Prince was going to perform at Kohaku this year since they don't tend to show their faces. That's the same with Ado, if I'm not mistaken. What's going on there? There's a lot of, of uh, hidden performers this year. Okay. Um, Strawberry Prince is another male group, more traditionally like J-pop idly, very upbeat. They're kind of a mixed media group. They're not like hidden entirely. If you're a fan and you go to their shows or some of their like meet and greets, you can actually see the members' faces. Right. However, outside of those like sort of sacred fan events, like they present themselves as anime avatars. Okay. And like all their music videos are just like anime. Right. So nobody's sure what they're going to do at Kohaku. Um, in the past, they've just like put paper cutouts of their anime characters over their faces. Right, yeah. So you might see that. Otto, meanwhile, is another shrouded in the shadows J-pop star uh-huh. that um, we've talked to at the Japan Times. And she actually performed last year, but that was as the character Uta from the One Piece movie that came out last summer. Okay. So she's technically debuting as Otto this year, but she's been on Kohaku. This year, Based on how Otto has gone about her live shows over the past year and a half, uh-huh. she'll probably be there. We can presume it's Otto. And she'll probably just be kind of like shadowy. Okay. Like when she performs live, she like performs in a cube. Right. And like the cube changes color. So it's harder to see her. Yeah. But you can see the outline of her body moving. Okay. So did Otto have the song of the year? Otto did not have the song of the year, I would argue, because okay. the song of the year is undeniably Yoasobi's Idol. You've heard that one, right, Sean? I think I have. Did your hairdresser tell you about it? <laughs> I think you did. Okay. Yeah, it's My other the, go-to. It's me the hairdresser. <laughs> um, so Otto's had some big songs, but yeah, the biggest song of the year, which will absolutely be represented at Kohaku, is by the duo Yoasobi, who have kind of become like flag bearers for this new generation of J-pop. Idol was the theme song to a super popular anime, Oshinoko, that was like big both in Japan and internationally. And Idol is this sort of like shape-shifting, 
J-pop slash Southern trap influenced. Oh. But it's also mixed with this sort of like gospel choirs. There's idol fans doing idol chants right. over it. It's this really like kind of like almost to me surreal kind of J-pop song. It's been huge. That's because of the anime, but also because it's a really unique song. And they're going to be there. And that's, I think, going to be one of the biggest moments for sure. Which group are you looking forward to most at this year's Kohaku? Ooh, great question, actually. You know what? For me, the one I'm most interested to see is a group called Atarashi Gako. Okay. They really represent this sort of, to take it back to the theme, this borderless evolution of J-pop. This is a four-piece group that's been around since the late 2010s. They're kind of like high-energy social media first idols. Like they covered the Beastie Boys sabotage at one point. They're that kind of idol. They wear schoolgirl uniforms, but not like that way, you know, not like an AKB48 way. Right. Because they're more like wacky zany. They're always on TikTok. Uh And they've gotten really big internationally. So they, to me, really represent J-pop opening up to the world. What are the Johnny's people going to do? So that's actually interesting because Snowman, Uh who I think have the highest selling single of the year in Japan, Dangerholic, I think. They're the most popular male pop group in Japan going. And they announced a few days before Kohaku, and this in retrospect feels like kind of a sign of what was to come, that they'll do a special concert that will be live streamed on YouTube on December 31st. Yeah. It's kind of counter-programming because Johnny's fans will probably go to that. And in one of the weirder ironic twists, Johnny is a company known for being like allergic to the internet for decades <laughs> is now actually the one just putting something on YouTube live stream. Oh, how the worm is turned. End days, I tell you. <laughs> so Patrick, in December, the Japan Times will do raps of uh, various cultural fields. And I believe you're up first with the music rap. So listeners should look out for that in the weeks ahead. Thanks for coming back on Deep Dive. Well, thank you for always having me. I'm glad you didn't bring the hairdresser on in my place. Patrick's writing on Kohaku is available at japantimes.co.jp, as well as ongoing coverage of the Johnny's and Takarazuka scandals. And of course, Gabriel Dominguez's thoughtful defense and geopolitics analyses are also there. So we'll put links in the show notes. Elsewhere in the news, Daisaku Ikeda, who helped spread Buddhist thought worldwide through Soka Gakkai, Japan's largest religious organization and an ally of the government, has died from natural causes at the age of 95, the organization announced last week. He was the longtime spiritual leader of the lay Buddhist organization known abroad for its association with celebrities and at home for its influence on politics. Sokagakai was founded in 1930 and, according to the organization itself, has 12 million members worldwide. You may have seen a video of actor Orlando Bloom talking to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky about the group recently. To learn more about Ikeda, a very important figure in Japanese politics, head to the Japan Times. Again, that address is japantimes.co.jp. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our theme music is by 4L, and the outgoing theme you're hearing right now is by Oscar Boyd. And I'm hoping none of you catch this cold that I have. I'll do my best to get over it for next week. I'm Sean McKenna. Otsukare-sama. Otsukare-sama.